This morning we come to our fourth Sunday of Advent, and tomorrow we'll celebrate together our Christmas Eve Eve service. <clears throat> if you're ever wondering why we have a Christmas Eve Eve service and not the traditional Christmas Eve service, it's merely the distance that uh, our church has historically uh, had, and, and uh, to relieve some of that, we've done a Christmas Eve Eve service, um, <clears throat> so that Christmas Eve you might either be with your families or even attend a, a local service if you so choose. Uh, that's closer to your family. We know it's difficult with people traveling. So we have that tomorrow. It's always a good time. Lots of singing. We'll have some food afterwards. So I encourage you if you can make it out to join us at 7 o'clock. It'll, it'll be a good time. But today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We've been in our study of Christ in the Old Testament. And not only that, we've been in this particular season of Advent considering Christ in the Old Testament by looking at some of the birth narratives and in them seeing the hope of the birth of our Messiah. We were told in the very beginning, the very first gospel promise was that the seed of the woman, the child of the woman, the offspring of the woman would be our deliverer. And so in some sense, all through the ages, the birth of every child, uh, the hope of, uh, of God's people is longing and waiting for the coming of that particular child who will do what God promised. Perhaps it would be Cain, but alas, they discovered quickly it was not, and on and on and on and on we go. And in some sense, even Hannah, in her longing, uh, as we thought about last week, the desire she had, the painful desire she had, as we said, was not merely to be a mom, not merely to have a child, but to be a participant in this hope of Israel, in this longing of God's people, <clears throat> that perhaps through her, maybe, uh, if not would come the direct child, but somehow her child would play a part in that. And of course, he did. He would be the one that would anoint David, and through David would come our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today we don't consider uh, an actual historical birth in, in the Old Testament, but rather the prophecy of now, the birth of this child of promise, the, the, the prophesied birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, taken from the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> Our text is Isaiah 9, a very familiar text to us all, um, who have been celebrating Christmas for any period of time. Uh, uh, so our text is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. I'll read that here momentarily. But as we do, we're hearing it in the context of Isaiah 11, and then I'm even going to go back and pull out something from Isaiah 8. And I mean, there's just so much in Isaiah that is preparing the people, uh, maybe in the clearest way, right? It's as if uh, that one of the illustrations <clears throat> uh, that I use uh, with my students when thinking about Christ in the Old Testament, I use many different metaphors in this vein, but one of them is imagine if there was a, a treasure in a, in a room and the lights were off and you couldn't make it out. You didn't, you, with the darkness, you couldn't even see that there's a treasure on a table in the, in the middle of the room. Um, but, but over time, you're, you're, you're told there is, and and you can't make out exactly what the promised treasure is, but you know you will one day receive it. And then the lights, the little dimmer switch on the, on the, in the room starts to raise, and the lights start to come on. And we start to make out some form of what this treasure is that we're expecting and looking forward to receiving. And the promise is given in Genesis 3.15, and if you will, in that moment, the lights just begin to come on. I mean, we can make out something, but it's really, really hard to kind of find out what's there. We've got a seed of a woman crushing the head of a serpent, a serpent biting a heel. I mean, it's like, what do we do with that? 
uh, how, how do I get from there to, to uh, Baby in a Manger, uh, to Herod, to, to Pontius Pilate, to Caiaphas, to a cross, to a grave, to you know the ascension? I mean, there's so many details left out of that, but it's there. It's a description of the treasure. The lights have just begun to come on. I see that there's something in the center of the room. And if we, if we imagine that throughout the rest of the Old Testament then, the lights are gradually coming on. And we're beginning to see more and more of the shape, the distinctives, what's going to happen, what this treasure really looks like. We'll, we'll do well to read the Old Testament that way. The lights are brightening, and we're beginning to see more. Well, by the time you get to Isaiah, the lights are almost fully on. I mean, we're starting, some of the descriptions of Isaiah regarding what the Lord is going to do through Jesus are pretty clear, so that by the time he comes, we're almost getting an exact representation of what was said in, uh, in Isaiah. Uh, so think about it that way. When we come here now, it's getting to be very, very clear. We've almost gotten the fullness of the, uh, of the picture. No more except just to meet him, and that we do <clears throat> in, uh, in the Christmas season. So let me go ahead and read uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and then I want us to think about uh, three aspects of this on this fourth Sunday of Advent, three aspects of Advent. Page 611, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to, establish, uh, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In this fourth Sunday of Advent, I want us to think about three things. Again, uh, in this, conveniently, they all begin with C, but uh, they're not so much points. I just want us to think about the context of Advent praise and then the command, maybe not to praise, but to think Advently. <laughs> we'll make up adverbs here today, uh, Advently. And then, and then also uh, uh, the, the uh, cause for Advent praise, uh, the consequence of our Advent hope. So let's make it four Cs, but it will be three points. Um, so first, thinking about the context of Advent. You hear here, in, even in the uh, beginning of our text uh, this morning, in verse 9, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Right? The, the, that is, the, the darkness that many walked in. Right? We're going to hear that. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have been under the oppressor the rod of their, of their oppressors. That's going to be broken. I challenged my students on uh, Friday. We had our, our Christmas party. We 
shorten our classes. We end school at 12:30, and then we come in for a little. The sixth graders do the uh, uh, do the what do you call it? the nativity thing while we're singing and reading some scripture, and it's nice. It's just a tradition at Chapel Field, and then the parents put on this really big feast for us. You know, nice turkey and ham dinner, and uh, so we have a good time doing that. But I give them sort of a last charge and and uh, uh, maybe some short Christmas message. It was very short, but the two things that I challenged them was in this season of Advent was to praise and prepare. And tomorrow night, I'll though I'm now making the connection. I didn't. I'm not building that off of that talk. It was too short to do so. But essentially, tomorrow's talk will be prepare uh, for you. Uh, when we gather together tomorrow night, we'll be looking at Titus chapter 2. And Titus will challenge us to how to live while we wait, right, in this Advent time. But today, I want us to think about praise, praising, but to praise. And I mentioned this to the students, and it's hard for high schoolers, junior higher kids, to wrap their minds around. They feel like, you know, everything's good, life is good, life goes on forever. Very hard for them to reckon with the context of Advent yearning, the context of Advent hope, the darkness that surrounds us, the, the pain and the burden of the curse under which we live. Hard to, hard to explain to junior hires the curse. You know, hard to explain to them the fact that we live in a cursed world. It's underneath the curse of God's judgment. Um, you're a kid. It doesn't feel like that. You're filled with hope and expectation and ambition and all those kinds of things. The older you get, the more, the less I have to persuade you that this is the case. We're so used to watching the news. We're so used to dealing with bad news from uh, friends and the, the news of people's sickness and the news of their death and the news of their divorces and the news of their unemployments and the news of, you know, just, I mean, we're used to this. And, you know, we, we, it, it, almost, it almost, in the big picture, becomes white noise to us. So in some sense, I, I need to refresh your minds of it. But this is the context out of which Advent hope really comes. And you must open your eyes to it. You must see it. Even as we celebrate with all of our Christmas songs and all of our Christmas spirit and all of our lights and all of our trees and all of our eggnog and all of our whatever, all this stuff, which is good, which is good because this is a season ultimately that drives us to great celebration. But at the same time, we must guard. There's a balance that must be run between deep and sincere joy and celebration and even giddiness is okay. But that must always be balanced over against sort of raw sentimentality. You know, we, have, we have to be careful that we, we don't fall into that. We can hold the one without falling into the other. And Isaiah grounds us here in this reality. What is their Advent hope coming out of? Well, it's the fact that they've been dwelling in darkness. They've had this oppressor beating them with a rod. You've got garments soaked in blood. In the text of Isaiah 11, right, the, the, the text, this, this beautiful text, and a shoot will come from the root of Jesse. Well, the idea there in that text is that the great and mighty forest of Israel has, by the judgment of God, been lopped down. And when you look across the landscape of Israel, that once great forest of God, it is now a field of stumps. It's desolation. It's judgment. It's curse. It's grays and browns. <laughs> I think, I'm just thinking in colors. 
It's depressing. Yet, Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, yet you look over and amid this field of brown, gray stumps, there's one stump with a little sprig of green. And you wonder to yourself, could it be that there is still life? Could it be that there's still hope? Could it be that the forest would one day be repopulated because of this one little tiny sprout? Of which not much would be expected. Isaiah 53, we didn't think much of him when we first saw him. There wasn't anything to draw us to him. It's a little tiny sprig coming out of a dead stump. But if you look around at what you hoped would be a forest, it has so much potential, this mighty forest. And you thought, what a grand forest this will be. And then it was just laid down, lopped off by the judging hand of God. That's depressing. This is the world in which we live. What hope does it have? <laughs> this, is, this is the context of Advent and it's quite depressing in and of itself. But it's really important because it then sets the context for real, genuine, I mean, gut-busting celebration. We should let it rip in the Christmas season. We should, we should just, you know, be laughing and singing and hugging and dancing and feasting. But in order to have really substantial laughing and really substantial feasting and really substantial hugging and really substantial gift giving and all those kinds of things, it's got to flow out of this. Because if not, it'll just become light. It just is, is like frivolity. But if it flows out of this, if you really know how bad the bad news is, then the good news is really good. Really worse. I mean, nobody should celebrate like Christians. Christians should be the league leaders in celebration. Right? It should be rich and robust and loud and happy and full of color and flavor. Because it flows out of this. Because, man, we thought there was no hope. We th all we saw was, a, was a, a valley full of dry bones. All we saw was a field full of stumps. All we saw was desolation. All we knew was darkness. We knew that that was the reality. You didn't have to convince me of the curse. I get it. I get it. But into that, and in that darkness, we have Advent hope because these promises are brought to us. So I think we have to remind ourselves again, not to depress ourselves. We don't want that. Right? We're hope-filled people, but we want a substantial hope. We want a realistic hope. We want a hope that is rooted in something. <clears throat> so we got to understand the, the context. And then the command. Now, the command is not a command to praise. Um, it's not even, the command that I'm going to point you to here is not even a command for Advent hope. It's just a command to think differently. A command to think differently. And it's in chapter 8, verse 11. says, For the Lord spoke thus with me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of the people, saying to me, do not say, quote, a conspiracy concerning all that the people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now from that, I want to extract, I want to draw out 
a co an advent command. And he's telling Isaiah, don't think like they think. Don't call things as they call them. This is like, this is like an Old Testament version of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Look, it is bad. There's a field of stumps out there, okay? It is bad, right? You're in the darkness. You're under the oppressor. But you must look at the world. And again, I don't have to convince you of the curse. I don't have to convince you of the, the difficulties that we live under, that this is not heaven, that we should long for something else. I don't have to convince you of that, I hope. At the same time, don't you be a curmudgeon. Don't you be the grumbler. Don't you be the cynic. Don't you be the person who goes on and about about how bad this always is, right? We've got to be people who see the world differently. Because we have the script. I, I've, I've got the script in my hand. I know why characters act the way they do because I've read the script. I know why they hate Christians. I've read the story. I know why this age is filled with suffering and grief. I know because I understand what sin is. And I understand what the Lord said. The day you eat, you will surely die. And we got to deal with that. And we're not to long for this world. We're to long for something else. I know that. See, we, we have the script. And therefore, we have to be very careful that we don't slide into seeing the world just the same way that all the non-believers see the world. As if this is all there is, and we've got to fix all these problems, and we've got to get it right, and we grumble about what we've lost. and we Don't do that, he says. Don't you walk in the way of the people. You've got to see things differently. We need to look at the world with Advent lenses. We need to have a substantial hope for the coming of Jesus Christ rooted for us in the first coming of Jesus Christ. We stand on the foundation of Christmas, on a solid rock that can't be blown over because he has come. And therefore, we can look with certain expectation for his second coming. And in the meantime, deal with the problems, the real problems, the painful problems. We can deal with the curse knowing that in Christ it's broken. Knowing that in Christ, the principalities and powers have been disarmed. That was our reading of the law today, our word of exhortation from Colossians 2. It's been disarmed. Our enemies have been defeated. So there's a command here to us. The context is darkness. And the command is, don't think like they think. Don't interpret reality the way they interpret it. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And that's no easy thing to do. You need the Spirit of God to do this because we live in a world where constantly swirl, we have a worldview and, and a perspective that's just swirling around. It's very hard for us to separate ourselves out from that. But in order to do it, we need to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. We need our minds to be transformed by the Spirit of God. We need to really, really, really get the script in us. We need to understand the story we're living in so that it is through the lens of the Bible that I can look at reality and I can begin to interpret it. Again, I'm not talking about every little detail of providence. I don't mean that. I mean the grand narrative arc. The arc. 
right? That, that's, that's what we need to see. So we don't get bogged down. We don't get too giddy about the fleeting pleasures. And we don't get too depressed about the fleeting pains. I see things all through this Advent hope. Okay. So the context is tough. The command is serious. Don't think like they think, but rather to have this Advent hope. Now we get this beautifully in Isaiah 9. All this little, hey, not this, but this, or this has been changed into that. And this, you've got to remember, again, do this, Paul says uh, in, in Romans 13, do this knowing the times in which you live. That these promises given in Isaiah 9, even in Isaiah 11, have already been established in Jesus' first coming. What they're looking forward to has come, and yet not fully been established. It's come in principle. It's come in Christ. It's working itself out in the church and will one day find consummation in his second coming. So lay hold of these. These aren't mere promises about the future. They're realities for us in Christ. But again, you've got to think not like the world thinks. You've got to think biblically. So what do we have? These wonderful transitions or transfers or transformations. Verse 2, those who are in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. This takes us back to our very first Christ in the Old Testament sermon in this little series, and that was Genesis 1.1. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. And I told you that right there in verse 3 of the Bible, we have the entire story of the Bible. Those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. And this is, here they are, dwelling in the darkness of, of tyranny, the darkness of enemies over them. Certainly in a, on a historical level, they were, deal, they were dealing with it. But of course, their historical darkness of having the Midianites over them or whatever army was over them was just a little picture of, again, the greater enemy that was looming over us, right? Satan, sin, and death, were, they, they were caricatured in the Midianites, they were caricatured in the Philistines. They were caricatured in these different peoples. These were little pictures of the fact that we are under the tyranny of an enemy by the sovereign hand of God. We're under the tyranny of darkness. We said even the darkness of Genesis 1 verse 3 was nothing compared to the, the darkness of sin that comes in in Genesis 3. And there we are in darkness, and we have no ability to bring light. We're just in sheer darkness. But to those who are in darkness... That context of Advent, to them has been given a great light. Jesus, the light of the world, has come and brought hope and life to man. This is what we celebrate. This is what we look forward to. So we've gone from darkness to life. And then in verse 3, from insignificance to significance, you have multiplied the nation. You've taken us who are nothing. Now, again, this is a prophetic He's saying this like in a prophetic past. So he's telling the future as if it was already done because they, they're dwelling in, you know, right now they're under the hand of the Midianites, right? They're, they're under that oppression. They're in exile. But he's stating this prophetic thing about the future as if it was, it's so certain he puts it in the past. You have done this already. We're a field of stumps. What do you mean you multiplied the nation? You've lopped us down. 
Yes, but this is the certainty of what he's doing. This is the Advent hope and how certain the Lord speaks it to Israel that even though it's future, it might as well be the past. That's how, that's how much you could take it to the bank. He's taking you who are nothing, you who have been lopped down, you who said we have no life in us. Isaiah or Ezekiel, can these bones live? Lord, only you know. Speak to the bones. Speak to the bones. Look how I make of them a mighty army. You say, say now to Israel this army. We are dried up. We have no life in us. Tell them, Ezekiel, what I'm going to do. Yeah, same thing here. We have nothing. We're a field of stumps. But you're going to multiply the nation. You're going to take us from darkness to light, from insignificance to significance, from mourning to joy. All morning lasts for a nighttime, but joy comes in the morning. You have increased our joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This to a people who are under oppression right now, but with such confidence. Can we speak with that kind of confidence in the face of cancer? Can we speak with that kind of confidence in the face of broken relationships, in the face of unemployment, in the face of war, in the face of a culture that's falling apart, in the face of whatever, fill in the blank for whatever thing will cause you despair. In the face of the darkness, can you speak with that kind of past certainty? It's already been done. It's already been done. You have done it. You've increased our joy. Like joy is like this objective thing, not some subjective feeling. It's an objective thing and you have, you have increase that you've multiplied you've put a big bank account of joy there for us and it's all ours for the taking that's why jesus can say my joy i give to you you know when he when he's about to go to the cross there in john 14 he's done it he's increased the joy and he his joy this objective joy he gives to us he takes us from mourning and causes us to rejoice again that's why our christmas celebration should be full of jolly laughter celebration is really are filled with joy it's not light it's not trivial because we we celebrate the real thing and then fourthly he takes us from burden to liberation verse four you have broken the yoke of his burden the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of midian and we read that in colossians chapter two that all the principalities and powers that are opposed to us, he has disarmed them, right? He's disarmed them. He takes their swords and turns them into plowshares. He's disarmed them, and then he made public spectacle of them. He humiliated everything that was opposed to us, all those enemies that opposed us. He has disarmed, and he has defeated, and he has humiliated. Today, we read the, the, the beginning of Revelation. Go read the end. Go read the celebrations of, of Revelation 19 when he, he's celebrating and they're just going on and on about the victory that he has uh, uh, gained over the dragon and over the beast and over all that would oppress and oppose the church and the Lord's anointed. We celebrate because literally everything that opposes you, everything that opposes you has been defeated in Jesus Christ. And then finally, he's taken us therefore from war to peace. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. Or think about that beautiful imagery that we read in Isaiah 11 about the peace he will bring. The wolf 
will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, and the young ones lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play in the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You think about how many little images he gives there. You talk about repetition in the Bible, meaning importance. I mean, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? Okay, how about an ox and a, let's see, an ox and a lion. All right, how about a, a baby and a cobra? Okay, how about a leopard, a leopard and a lion? You know, these, this enmity, all these pictures of the enmity that was there that we suffer under and that we struggle under, it's gone. It's gone. It has already been defeated. Now, why is all this? Well, the answer is obvious and we know it. For unto us a child is born. All this is true because to us a son is given. That child promised long ago in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is given. Again, here as if it's past tense. For unto us a child is born. It's, it's so certain for them. But for us, for us, it's not just sort of this future prophecy that's historical it's actually historical we celebrate the birth of this child this child that was given unto us who will accomplish himself all these things and he's an amazing son that's why i chose you might wonder why revelation one for our new testament reading today but the reason i choose i chose uh, uh revelation one and go back go back and read it because we don't have time here maybe in sunday school but go back and read it later by yourself and listen and look at at John's vision of Jesus. Because remember, he hears a voice speaking behind him. And then in that text, he turns around to see a voice, and he describes Jesus, and he just doesn't look like the Jesus you have in your head. Because <laughs> he's got white hair, he's got, you know, he's got this big robe, he's got a sash across him, he's got feet of, of burnished bronze, he's got, you know, he's, you know his eyes are fire. Uh, so just wild stuff. And granted, it's a vision, but it's interesting that that's the vision John gets of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the picture you have in your little children's Bible, right, with the flowing dirty blonde hair and the, you know, and the, the, the smile and the little lamb around his neck. It's not that that wasn't true ever historically. But the point is, how, when, and this is, again, why you know how much I love the book of Revelation, but what Revelation does for us is it changes your lenses. It says, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a Jewish carpenter? Do you see a wise man? A, a, a sort of traveling rabbi? Because this is how the world sees him. And that's what he looks like. If you just look on the exterior, he looks like a wise man. He looks like a Gandhi. Right? He, he's just a traveling wise man around. A Buddha. He looks like a wise moral teacher, right? Just a guy has a lot of good wisdom and who's pretty amazing. He loves people and is even willing to lay his life down for his neighbor. Really honorable, really noble. Is that what you see when you look at him? Look again. Look with Revelation lenses. Look with Isaiah lenses. And what you will see is a man with a sword coming out of his mouth, with eyes of fire, with feet of burnished bronze, who when he speaks, you fall on your face. When you look, do you just see a baby in the manger or do you see a son who has the government upon his shoulders, who says, all right, give it to me, <laughs> and takes it all. He rules the world. 
with truth and grace. Is that what it was? Truth and light? Truth and light? I can't do it if I'm not singing. He rules the world. We'll sing it later. But he bears it all. The full government is upon his shoulders. He establishes justice. When you, when you go, uh, uh, again, back to uh, chapter 11, and a branch will come up from this little stump, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, a spirit of might, a spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. He will not do what we tend to do. He will do what Isaiah was commanded to do, and he will see all things through the lenses of the word of God and through the lens of his father. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He will know the true narrative, and he will judge with equity, and he will listen, and he will hear truth. He will decide in equity for the meek, and he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Is that the little baby you see in that manger? In all our little creches and all our nativity sets, it's okay. He was a literal human baby. You can have a picture of a baby there. But what do you see? We ought to see this child. This is the son that was given to us. A son who has the spirit of wisdom and righteousness and who will slay his enemies. I said this to the students again at some point. I said, you know, Christmas is a wonderful Beautiful holiday, and yet, if you're not a Christian, it's just, it should be the scariest day of the year because the king has come. It tells us he's here, he's real. The one who is going to slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. The one who's going to take a ride of iron and dash the enemies apart like they were vessels of clay has come. Is that the baby you see? Well, that's your hope. That's our Advent hope, that that son will be given for us, has been given to us, so that in him then all these things are true. They're yes and amen. And it's on that then that we look forward again to his second coming when he will put all things to rights. He will settle the scores. He will finally finish what he has begun. In the meantime, as the author of Hebrews says, while it is still called today, in this time between the times, he says, let us repent. Let us make use of the patience of God. He could have dashed everyone to pieces on his first coming, but he was dashed to pieces. And he has delayed the dashing of pieces of all the enemies until that day. And while it is still called today, and he has not yet come and finally done that, then let us make sure that our hope and our trust is in him. Let us repent. Do not harden your hearts, the author of Hebrews says, but let us trust and repent in him and know the hope that we have, that Advent hope. And if you know that hope, then brothers and sisters, I charge you today to feast. I charge you to celebrate. I charge you to laugh. I charge you to hug. I charge you to dance because you know the darkness out of which you've been saved. You know the life that has been given to you, and you know the one who has done it. So let us celebrate the, the, the reality of his coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's out of that darkness that you spared us. The darkness was due to our sin. We have no one to blame for the stump field except ourselves. 
We have no one to blame for the darkness. We have no one to blame for the oppression. We have no one to blame for any of these things but ourselves, for we are the sinners who chose to rebel against you and who daily do it. But you, who are rich in grace and mercy, by your sheer sovereign pleasure and goodwill, and because you are merciful, have bestowed grace upon us. And you have taken us who are in darkness and let us see the light. You have taken us who are under oppression and you have given us freedom. You took us who were nothing and made us significant. You took us who were mourning and gave us joy. You took us who were at war and sure to be defeated and have defeated all our enemies and given us peace. In this truth, we celebrate. And Lord, we give you all glory, honor, and praise today and throughout this Christmas season and forevermore. Amen.